Welcome to the podcast. It's your old buddy CH, and my plus one today is Anthony Carlson. Hi there, Anthony. Hi there. <laughs> this is a little bit different podcast this week. I posted something a couple weeks ago about the games program that my kids have been involved in at our local public high school, Monrovia High School, and I got a lot of interest on it on LinkedIn. Uh, a lot of people couldn't believe that that you could do such a thing in a public high school. And the man who created the program and who runs the program is Anthony Carlson. Anthony, can you tell the people a little bit about your background and how you got into teaching uh, and how you got into starting the games program? Sure. Yeah. I have a pretty eclectic background. I'd say actually I have a bachelor's in science in psychology from Brigham Young University. That's where my formal education stopped. I'm a musician. I've been playing the drums for a long time and was playing in a band that was getting some clout and was on that career track for a little while, spent some time touring in, in the professional music industry. Slayer. But, <laughs> right. Yeah, totally Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> slayer, if, uh, but with a Beach Boy twist. There we go. <laughs> was, <laughs> we got to a point where we moved out to LA and being a band in, in Provo and being a band in LA are two very different things. I had started a family, was starting to have some kids, and I wanted to find something that also I could be just as passionate about as I was music. And that's when I tripped, just on a whim, taught myself HTML and CSS on free resources online. And that was really like eye-opener to me and is part of the drive of like why I wanted to do a program like this at MHS. Because growing up, I was comfortable with computers and I loved games. Mm -hmm. I've been a gamer since my youth. But to be able to program like that term, computer programming, I thought you had to be a genius to mm -hmm. be doing calculus on your mirror <laughs> in your spare time for fun to be able to do anything like that. And so the fact that I could get a red square to pop up in my browser and move across the screen with some HTML and CSS that floored me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a revelation to me. This is amazing. And so I just started swallowing up everything I could to do with programming. I did a lot just on my own for a little while, but then I, I quit my day job and did a web dev bootcamp for really intense three months. A lot of those programs promised to get a six-figure job after three months. I was like, ah, maybe that happens sometimes, but <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't under the impression that's what was going to happen. But it did fill a lot of gaps because I didn't study you know, computer science in college. And so it got me up to speed. And more than anything, it taught me to be a, a confident developer. I think that's mm -hmm. something that, that even college programs struggle with is whenever there's a focus on tools and tool sets, it's like, okay, you're going to study your sophomore year in college, but by the time you get out, it's going to be irrelevant. You have to really have the know-how to, you know, to get out onto the internet and learn what you need to learn to be able to mm -hmm. make what you want to make. That's really what the web dev bootcamp did for me. I was confident in being able to teach myself whatever I needed to learn. After that, I, I did some freelance web development for a while, mostly sticking around just customizing WordPress sites and, and things like that, front-end stuff. I was also at the time teaching a lot of after-school programs in the, in the Pasadena School District, mm -hmm. mostly to, to junior, like junior high and, and elementary level kids. So uh, a lot of that was uh, what's called the Scratch program. I'm sure you've heard of that before, mm -hmm. like T Scratch. And um, so we, I got to do that with younger kids. But then I, I had a, an old friend uh, that was doing some hours for his counseling certificate at Monrovia High. He had called me and said, hey, we're in dire need of a programming teacher. <laughs> Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, absolutely, because that's my alma mater. And I would love to go back there and see what they got going on. Going back to the experience I had when I first did HTML and CSS, I was like, if I can do this, <laughs> there's plenty of kids in that age range that could do this. This is totally a doable thing and a learnable skill. So that's how I got started at, at Monrovia High. When I got there, though, they had handed me a curriculum for a programming class. 80% of it was writing with pencil and paper. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's not super relevant. Right? <laughs> I need to get on a computer and start typing. And then they also handed me, funny enough, a game design textbook from you know, 1996 or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, let's maybe try to build this up a little more, bring it up to date. Coding is such a buzzword in public school and in, in academia. If the school can say they have coding, it's like a box they've checked off. And so they right. had that, but do they have something that represents 
the skills and the, the process right. necessary to getting into the industry? Absolutely not. That's what I really looked at as like an opportunity to really dive into the game making process, learn it myself, but also alongside with these students and really just try to replicate what it's like to work in a game studio as much as I can. You've been in my room. I try to make it look and feel as much like a game studio as possible. Now, you've been doing the game program how long? Four years? We would just have completed my fourth full year. Give a little bit of, of an overview of the game program. What do you teach? How many kids are in the class? What's the curriculum and the process look like? Sure. The games program is part of what's called the CTE program on our campus. It's career technical education, which is meant to give students employable skills. And as much as we can, real world work experience, they call them CTE pathways. Technically, for a student to complete a pathway is only two classes. The first level class is an intro to programming class. Mm -hmm. I do that with the Python programming language, even though we don't use that later on. Python mm -hmm. is just such a great first programming language to learn. It's so versatile. Even if you don't end up doing game development, Python touches so many different things. Mm -hmm. If you know even a little bit about Python, you have a nice little feather in your cap. Plus it makes a lot of the algorithmic thinking and logical thinking a little more accessible because the syntax is so light. That's the first year. We start with programming. The first half of the year, we do all basic syntax stuff. In the second half of the year, we, we build projects. That's what you want to have in your back pocket when you're looking for jobs job as projects. We touch on a little bit of game development, not the actual development process, but I have them build some games with a library called Pygame, just some simple Tetris or Pong, just so they can get used to this kind of new relationship with a computer that you have when you learn a programming language. So that's the first year. Honestly, the function of that class uh, is a little bit of a filter because I can't tell you how many students I get uh, that come in thinking that, oh yeah, I want to make games. And then when you realize how much work it is, <laughs> especially with how much time you spend in front of a computer, not playing something, then they're like, oh, well, I think I'd rather just play games than, than when they realize it's more work than it is fun. And that's A-OK -okay with me. For kids that don't continue on to the next year, I'm glad that they've ruled out that option for further on down the road. Drop thousands of dollars or whatever on a first year at college thinking this is what they want to do when I've given them a more accurate taste of what it's really like. The kids that go through that first year and want to continue, that's when we do the, the game uh, development class. And that's where we look at everything that goes into making a game. This class addresses what a lot of programs at this level and even at the collegiate level I'm learning uh, are a little short-sighted about. There tends to be a focus on just programming or, or just um, art asset creation. Yep. And this dives into that focus on tools. It's like, just learn Maya or just get really good at C++. <laughs> There's a lot more to a game than I, A, just those things and B, like how those things tie together. We try to look at everything that's involved with making a game. We do some writing exercises. Like I, honestly, the first several weeks feel a bit like an English class because we, we do a lot of writing. We do a lot of world building and ideation and talking about character and narrative. We spend some time with audio, specifically on audio design. Using really basic tools, GarageBand is what's easily accessible in my lab. We do talk a, a good deal about mechanics and breaking down mechanics and how to balance elements within a game. The project that's the big project for that year is a tabletop game because it's a lot easier to talk about those kinds of things, especially mechanics and balancing with physical media that you can touch, feel, erase, easily discard and not worry about breaking anything else rather than trying to do that alongside learning an engine like Unity. When you can rapidly iterate over a tabletop game, you get that experience of coming up with an idea, testing it a little bit, tweaking it, you can do it really, really quick. We talk about Agile a lot. I talk mm -hmm. about the Agile development process and precisely that iterative cycle that you can't just write down what your game is going to be on a piece of paper, make it, and then be done. You're very rarely going to come up with a very good game taking that approach. You have to go over it over and over and over again, but just getting that iterative process and how Agile applies to that. They make these games in small teams. So someone acts as the producer, someone will act as the art director, someone will act as the designer who's tweaking the mechanics. But they work on these small teams and they have their little mini scrum meetings to get through the production of a tabletop game. We get a lot of that done in the first semester, but the second semester is mostly focused on learning the Unity engine. 
we use all their free resources. That's one thing I really love about the Unity community is how much they've really built up their Unity Learn platform. It's, mm-hmm. it's an excellent resource. And so we go through all that together and, and students, some will gravitate more towards the programming because now they're doing C-sharp. They have a firm understanding of a lot of the fundamentals. So it's just a new syntax, but some of them will gravitate towards programming. Some will gravitate towards the artist track. It's everything that doesn't touch a script, basically. Right. <laughs> like, right. I just right. Had, how to implement assets, how to hook up animations, how to hand, handle sound. Because it's really important for a CT program to have something to show that the kids are learning something. They like to look for industry certifications. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's more valuable is having something you've made or is having a portfolio. They do take the Unity Cert test at the end of that semester, but it's, it's a box that we have to check off. But um, by the time they're done with that, technically they could be done with my pathway and say, hey, this was a great experience, but it's not for me. But the ones that are like, hey, I really enjoy doing this. That's when I offer this third year optional masterclass that for all intents and purposes, just a indie developer team. And that class ends up being ideally smaller, certainly less than 20, <laughs> between 10 and 15 would, would be the best. Their whole goal is to spend all year making a game from scratch and publishing it and shipping it into the real world, which is what we did with Doodle Dogs, what we did with Andy's Donuts previous to that. That's where it feels like coming to work. Instead of walking into another class and they know that they're going to have a scrum meeting and give a report on what they accomplished the day before and what they're planning on doing the day, what any hiccups are between departments. And that's pretty much a lab. Am I right? That There's not a lot of formal instruction in that class. Once you get to that year, it's get together with your team and build the game basically and you supervise and mentor, but it's really on the kids to self-organize and do the work, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly hard for me because I am super tempted to jump in and be a part of the team a lot of the times. Yeah. (laughs) But as much as I can, I I try to nip that urge in the bud. (laughs) Come in there and just let the students build it because that's Maybe, maybe to the chagrin of some students sometimes. Mr. Carlson, can't you come fix this? <laughs> as much as they do themselves, that's where it gets really special. It's special to say that we have this app that's out where it's 100% made by the students. No third-party assets. We don't buy backgrounds. We don't buy music. We don't buy animations. It's 100% made by those kids. How much are you in the earlier years of this standing in front of a blackboard and doing instruction versus giving them project work and expecting them to use YouTube or other resources to learn? Well, that's definitely something I push a lot in that first class. I have a wall of whiteboards in my room, but it's not for me to do instruction on. Very rarely do I pick up a marker pen. There's occasions where it's appropriate, but that's not part of my regular day-to-day. I'm on a screen as much as I can be. If I'm teaching them about loops or about conditional statements or something like that, I'll demo it. I'm going to introduce a concept. I'll demo it for you. And then I want you to go to the computer where the lesson is. I have a brief description about what I just demoed to you on there. But but I also always include YouTube tutorials. Mm-hmm. And I'll find what I think are the best ones. I get some like wide eyes sometimes when I say, hey, this is an open book, open note, open internet. Use whatever you have available to you to solve this problem. This is the only class <laughs> right? use the internet. Yeah, <laughs> right. At first they got really excited about that, but then when they realized it was digging through <laughs> Stack Overflow comments to find out how to target a specific index in a list or whatever, they're like, oh. so the answer is not just there. That's an important lesson to learn, right? The answer is not there, but what you need to be able to figure out the answer is there's definitely a lot of value in searching that out for themselves. I think it's a really important uh, lesson, actually, because we happen to be in an industry where all the tools are free that real professionals use. There are tons of videos that you can look up about design and teardowns and analysis of virtually any game you want to look at. There's tons of content, a lot of it free that you can learn how to actually program and how to fix problems. When Charlie was in your program, he would get stuck on something and go look it up on YouTube. And I think this is one of the big misnomers I want to talk about a little bit is a lot of people think that 
this type of program can only exist in private schools and it takes a lot of money to do, mm-hmm. but really other than the computers, it doesn't take a huge budget, right? No, no. Fortunately, because of the interest in CTE from the state, there is a lot of money, but once we have a computer lab with decently running computers, that's really all you need. A harder thing to fight against than budget monetary issues are our classical views of, of teaching for me or the culture that exists around public school teaching, because that's what a classroom is supposed to look like, what you're supposed right. to be doing, teacher mm-hmm. standing up in front of the class, pointing to a blackboard, students in their seats, nodding their heads. Exactly. That's the hardest thing to fight against. That's what it's been for however long. I fortunately haven't been called out it, on it too much, but for example, 10 minutes is really pushing a lecture for me. <laughs> That's almost going overboard. I try to keep it between five and seven longest of me talking because that's really all that's needed for me to introduce a concept. Then I let the students go and and figure it out. What what I set out to do with this was really give my students the experience I had in the web dev bootcamp where I had that expectation too at first. I can't figure this out. Can you come help me do this? He's a great instructor and I keep in touch with him to this day, but eventually he just said, no, I'm not going to come over there. You're just going to figure it out. That's when things change for me. And that's the invaluable lesson. That's the big meta education that's going on. Whether you pick up Python, whether you become a developer, whether you touch a computer again, there's a lot you can learn on the internet for either free or cheap. Mm -hmm. And utilize those resources. What I try to get across is five years from now, no one's going to ask you what grade you got in this class. No one's going to care. And that's going to be the same for once you graduate college. No one's going to ask you what you got in any class. What's going to matter is what you've produced and your ability to learn how to produce more. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to be valuable. And that's what's going to come out in any interview that you sit in is people getting the vibe from you that you're someone who is confident that if you don't know something, you could learn it. And your portfolio is a reflection of how much you've gone out and pushed yourself to learn new things. Charlie, who was in your class, goes to USC Mm -hmm. and they're the top games program in the country. And it's $60,000 a year tuition. And mostly what they do is put the kids together in a class and say, go make a game. He has some classes that are more formal and have more instruction. But the reason that their program is considered one of the top in the country is really that they just give kids time to make games and put an emphasis and a priority on making over classwork. And that's the secret is that most of the other game programs in the country, to your point there, they teach kids tools. They either teach kids unity or the Adobe suite or something like that. Often, as you said, to get a certification So they Mm -hmm. can say, this is how many people we certified this year. But Mm -hmm. in doing so, they don't always teach kids how to work together to actually make something. And I've seen the, the results that come out of the program, and it's pretty amazing. All my kids have been in pretty much all four years of your program, and every year they've shipped something. Sometimes a little late, sometimes a few uh, weeks after the year's over, but they ship it. Part of your class is shipping, right? That's a real challenge getting to that point of the year, because when we start at the beginning of the year, it seems like, oh, we've got all this time to make a game when really it's not even a full year. It's only only 10 months. That's a pretty tight deadline. With a winter break. Yeah, with a winter break. Pretty tight deadline. Not as much time as they'll think it has. And, And students that have been in that class multiple years realize that, right? Usually it's only the kids that are in there their first time think they have all this time, but if they've done it for two years in a row, then they know how quickly that time flies. Once we're in full production, like we've left pre-production and we're really just trying to crank out what we can during the year, eventually we get to that point where, and we've had the talk about avoiding crunch. We're not great at it yet, but we'll get better. Firm <laughs> Say, believer hey. in high schoolers crunching. <laughs> there we go. I think it's, there's I a think time it's to healthy. Crunch, yeah, yeah, if there's a time to crunch, it's in high school, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't have any kids. You don't... <laughs> You don't have any, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. For sure. <laughs> Learn so, to work. So that, <laughs> that being said, we hit that time every year and it's usually right towards the end of April. Hey, we've only got so many weeks left because we usually do things in 
we've experimented a little bit about doing sprints anywhere from one to three weeks. But when you look at things in sprints, it's like, wow, we only have one or two left. And yikes, we're really down to the wire. Yeah, Charlie but, was uh, just saying this. I was talking to him down downstairs before we recorded. He was saying one of the things that he's realized is in a professional setting, you can do two-week sprints. But with students, they'll do everything the night before. So you have to really keep a one-week sprint to keep them on track or they'll just not do anything. Right. And there's reasons for that. Obviously, they're not getting paid to do this, right? It's all volunteers. They got other classes. They, they have a job. Classes. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So. There's a lot going on. And so that's something I definitely take into account. I feel like that makes it even more impressive that these kids are pulling off stuff like this, right? It's like, this is all in free time and with tons of other things going on. Imagine what they could do if you paid them to do this stuff. If I can get across the point, hey, if, if this is at all interesting in what you're doing, if you leave high school with a published iOS game under your belt, it's invaluable. The other thing to your point about mobile is that you can get all your family members, the principal at the school, everybody can download it on their phone. Very accessible. And they can see it and play it where putting it on itch.io or whatever, they don't know what that is. But right. the parents actually will play the whole game that their kids made on their phone. And they have it there that they can whip out and show people when right. they say, look at what my kid made. It, it really does a lot to make it tangible and real. There's a lot of pride that I see from the kids when it when they ship. Yeah. And it's on their phone, on their device that is with them all the time. And that's one of the primary reasons why I think we've really stuck with Unity. I know over the last couple of years, there's been a massive wave of interest at the collegiate level in Unreal because of how amazing the technology is. And don't get me wrong, it is amazing technology. Love it. But precisely what you said, the accessibility that we get from developing mobile games with Unity, it just brings a spotlight to what they're doing in, in a lot better way. Something you had said earlier made me think about this because you had said how valuable it is for kids to work on a team and to understand what it is to work on a team. That is a huge part of the program too, because as cool as it is to read about that 13 year old who made his app and is now a billionaire, that's less than 0.0001% of, of the actual industry. Games are still made in teams. That's how games are made. You have to mm -hmm know how to communicate with other people. And so developing a lot of those soft skills is a big part of, of the program because I've seen it where tensions can arise and communication can break down in some areas. And here's our opportunity. You're not getting paid. You don't have to worry about being fired. There's this ample fertile ground for you to learn how you approach people on certain topics. If a designer wants something to happen in the game and the engineer's like, I have no idea how to do that. Then, okay, well, you guys got to come together and figure out how to Right. How to make it work. That's absolutely valuable. It's the hardest part in any creative project. Anytime you get a new group of people together, learning how to work with one another, learning one another's work styles, having enough trust that you can say things that are critical without being hurtful, holding one another accountable to get things done. To your point, my kids on the technical skills excel. They're, that, that comes to them very easily. All the struggles that they had in that program were how do you get other people to get to consensus or to do stuff, holding one another accountable, getting people to deliver stuff on time, getting people to understand that their work has impact on everybody else's work and doing that in a way that's not confrontational, but still holding people accountable. Those are really important lessons who you're accountable to are the rest of your teammates. That's who you're accountable to. What you really don't want is to be that person who every meeting is, well, I didn't do anything. I might do something today because you're quickly just not going to be trusted to get anything done. <laughs> something that I remember a, a game designer friend of mine had told me once is he said, you know, you're not a game designer until you make a game. But the fire underneath you for that is that if you want to be part of actually shipping this game and making this game, then you have to do work. If, if you don't, then you won't be a, a part of that. One of the things I try to do is get the students to realize how special it is to have that space that we have at MHS. Here's our room. This is like our little company. This is our domain. This is your studio. That's a powerful idea for kids to, to have. Yeah. Once they take ownership of that, I think that's what drives a lot of the creativity. And it, it, it can take a moment to get there because 
even in those first two years of the program, every other class they go to most of the time is Blackboard, sitting in a row, get my thing, do my assignment, get my grade, ask about my grade every two weeks. <laughs> That's school. That's what school is still in a lot of ways, but it does require a little bit of a flip of a switch when you walk into to our classroom because you're here for a completely different reason. You're here to grow in a lot of ways, grow in your skill set, to grow in your ability to communicate. It's a very different mindset. Now, have you met any other educators or do you know of other schools that do programs like this? Are you connected to other teachers who are trying to do these things? Without tooting my own horn, I, I, <laughs> it made me feel really uh, vindicated when Charlie got back from his first year and was like, hey, this is just like your program all over again. There's just more students and my professors worked at Disney and various places, but Honestly, he had the most experience out of most of his other classmates in terms of the overall process of making a game, which immediately tipped me off to, okay, I'm doing something right over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's preparing them. But whether they go to higher learning or whether they try to get right into industry, it's like, hey, you have some real experience here. I have looked for other high schools that are doing something like this, and I, I haven't found it yet. I'm not saying that they don't exist out there, but, but I really haven't found it. I found game programs in other schools, but like we said earlier, they tend to have a focus on programming or getting a cert or learning Maya or Blender or animation or things like that. No one's looking at games as the art form itself. They're looking at all the, the subdivisions of a game. As far as I know, I'm the only one doing it, at least in the area. Uh, well, it is, <laughs> and if many public schools in LA were doing it, you probably would know because we're by... Arcadia, we're by LAUSD. You would probably have some sense, at least in LA, of who's doing this. So we've talked a lot about the games. Maybe it'd be useful just to say really quickly what games the kids shipped over the last couple of years. So our first game, which we actually finished only in half a year, because that was my first year. And that's when we made Red Dungeon. And a lot of that was finished over COVID. And what kind of game was that? That was a side-scroller, endless runner, side little platforms that you jumped on. You had a little guy that was running away from a beast, and you had to kill enemies on your way, because if you let him go, the beast would eat him. Great first game. I was really, really proud of that, <laughs> like, uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, we got it onto Itch.io. The next year is when we set out to do something a little bigger, we wanted to make an iOS game. We, we decided that early on in the year. Okay, we're going to make a mobile game. One of the original ideas came from the year previous, we did the Global Game Jam at, at APU. Mm -hmm. And one of the games that was made by our students there was the rollerball game, but it, you were an egg <laughs> rolling around on a kitchen counter trying to save the other eggs from being cooked. <laughs> right? I think at one point you rolled by the frying pan and eggs were being fried in there and you hear like, help me. <laughs> it, was, it was really, really silly. From that, we had an idea of making a 3D game where you were a donut that would roll around a shop counter and dip yourself in ingredients to prepare yourself for an order. Taking some inspiration from the cooking games like Overcooked or Papa's Pizzeria, things like that, where you have a recipe that you have to make. Quickly realizing that 3D was going to be way out of our scope because we didn't have anyone that knew <laughs> Blender or anything. We're like, oh, okay, let's scale that back and, and do a 2D game. But really, man, the, the team that made that game, that was a special time. Things just worked really well. Mm. Charlie led that team really well, and we, we were able to regularly have the sprints, regularly figure out what needed to be tweaked for the next one. It was a great production process. Everything about that game is really, really fun. And the UI especially. I remember uh, Julia mentioning that at that art center where she's going, they brought up Andy's Donuts and specifically how captivating and eye-popping the artwork was. Oh, this is a really different looking game. It's a really, <laughs> really draws your eye in. And that got recognized by Congress, right? Yes, yes. We, we did submit that for a congressional app challenge. And the kids got to present? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Classically, they would fly kids out to D.C. to do this conference. But because we were still in COVID times, they did everything via Zoom. But yeah, they got to present the app in front of members of Congress uh, alongside only 50, I think, across the country that got to actually oh. present like that. So it was, it, that was a real honor. And I love the fact that it got recognized. I'm fairly certain we were the only game. It's significant for a lot of reasons because... It points to 
the game being recognized as a feat technologically. That's one of those uphill battles is even having a game design program is okay. What do you guys do? Just play games all the time. It's like, no, no, this is a very, very complicated piece of software and it takes a lot of effort and work to go into this. And so to have that recognized in such a way was really special. That was Andy's Donuts the year after. That's when I think we, we bit off a little more than we could chew. We had Steam in our crosshairs for that. We're like, we want to get a, a greenlit Steam game. But we learned a lot about scope that year. <laughs> that, that, was, <laughs> that, was a, <laughs> that was that was a title called Inkdom. It's technically available on itch.io. It's got some issues. But the one oh, thing I will say, it. we shipped it. We got it out there. That was a deck building game. Slay the Spire was a, an obvious and huge inspiration for that. We wanted to combine that with a really focused narrative story. The art and animation in that game is fantastic. I think that's where that one really stands out. I try to look for something to take away from each iteration that we do every year. And that was what we took away from that year. But the next year, this last year, is when we scope things down again and say, we had a lot of success getting our game out there when we did an iOS game. So let's focus on mobile. Um, and that's what we did this year. This year was a little different. It was difficult because I had a lot of kids in the class. So I had 20 kids in the class this year, which I, I try to keep down, but that's just how it ended up. And so I actually ended up splitting the class into two separate teams. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> that made things really difficult, made a, a weird dynamic between teams in the class because it wasn't all just everyone working on the same thing. But one of the games that came out of it was Doodle Dogs. And Aside from how, how great the app turned out, um, one of the things I was proud of this last year was the pre-production process and how well the students presented their early ideas for a game. I don't know if you got to see some of that. Charlie sat on it. Um, he, he said, I, I, I want you to record this so I can show it to my professors here at USC because what they just did is so far beyond what <laughs> most entry-level students are doing here. They, they really broke it down. They pitched game ideas to... The rest of our team, I had Charlie and a couple of other alumni sit in on it. We had our assistant principal and some other people from our school campus sit on it, and it, it blew everyone away. How detailed and how thought out and how well-spoken the students were in their ideas. Of course, everything can always be better, so I'm really looking forward to the pre-production process again this next year and doing it e even better. But I think Doodle Dogs really did well because I won't say how complete the idea was at the beginning, but with Julia being the creative director on that, she just did well to carry it through all the changes that, that come up during development. That's one thing that, that I'm learning. You can't have a perfect, clear vision of the end product because it's just yeah. not going to turn out that way. <laughs> but to have it be just enough of an idea that can guide all of your design decisions along the way, that's what they did. That's what she did. You know, and it turned out great because of it. Aligning on a vision, being able to communicate it, and then keeping people aligned against it and having that vision survive a bunch of pivots. Every game, no matter how experienced you are, is going to face those challenges. And teaching kids at that age to have to come up with an idea, present it, even if they never make another game again in their life, just the experience of having had to present uh, a creative idea. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. You don't get to do that in a lot of other classes. We decided which games we were going to make based on votes, not just from the team, but from the people who were presented. They weren't pitching for grant money, but I wanted it to feel like, hey, like, well, the game we make is going to be the one that you guys pre present the best and inspire confidence in those who are listening. Mm -hmm. Because even if you're not doing it for money now, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to inspire your confidence in your investors that this is a good idea. And so... The idea that inspires the most confidence is the game we'll make. <laughs> How many kids do you think have gone through the program now in the three or four years that you've done it? Who have gone through and actually published a game? It's not a super high number. It would be maybe like 120 who have gone through like the full process. I do get kids who enjoy the program for the first two years, but decide they don't want to do that mm -hmm. production experience the third year. Most of my other classes get filled up to 30 kids a class. Each year I have about 150 students. So multiply that by four, you're like 600 who have, who have at least wow. come through my room. Some of them are in there one week and decide right then and there that they never want to be there again. <laughs> I have a poster up in my room that says programming is art. 
And it, it really is. If I could liken learning how to program to anything, it's like learning a musical instrument. You either love this thing and you're going to put in the time and the practice to do it or you're not. <laughs> I'm not just competing with the other CTE programs like auto or sports med or engineering or anything like that. I'm competing mostly with the academic side of things the, with the AP programs and AP classes because that's the biggest push. That's still the message. Everyone go to college, everyone, and, and get as many AP credits in high school as you can, because that means you pay less in college. The biggest David Goliath fight is fighting that culture of getting the, the community to see programs like this as valuable and important mm. versus something like AP classes. I, I get a huge drop off from kids who take my programming class as a freshman and want to move on to game dev as a sophomore. Uh, I lose, honestly, about 50% of that to AP classes and, and other academic wow. uh, requirements. Even if they wanted to, the counselors say, if you want to get to this point, you have to take this class this year. So you don't have time for the game dev class. <laughs> There's just no space for it. I think my numbers coming through my program and actually producing a game would be a lot higher if that wasn't the case. But like how, I said, how David many kids that have gone through the program would you say go on to be in either games or some associated industry like design or programming? Do, do you think this is an onboard for kids into a professional career? Oh, sure. For a lot of reasons too, right? Because making a game involves so many things that it actually prepares you for a lot of different things. Not only Charlie, but Christopher Kaufman also went on to USC games. So that's two students that have left our program and gone to USC. Another student who was our lead engineer on Andy's Donuts, he's doing games at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I know one student who graduated this year got an internship at a law firm. And the way he conducts himself in a sit-down meeting, they're like, are you sure you just graduated high school? He's there with a notepad asking questions. He's, he's scheduling things. That's something you got by sitting in on these scrum meetings all the time. That's where you got that. So in terms of preparation for a professional career, I think making games is an excellent way to do that. And especially if you're making games in high school, because here you have exposure to all those different processes that are not just in software and games. They're, they're all over the place. So yeah, absolutely. The way we try to run it like a professional game studio, it reflects that from the students who graduate from the program. So if a teacher from another district somewhere else in the country heard this and called and said, Anthony, I'm thinking about starting a program like this. What advice would you give them? That's a question that's been on my mind because I have been trying to ideate ways I could package this all up. <laughs> Say, here's what you got to be doing. If I had to boil it down to a short list of steps, I think step number one would be looking at the pedagogy or the approach to education that we're doing here and not relying on a textbook. The thing that will benefit your program the most is taking a real active interest in the current goings on of the industry. I'm constantly learning. I'm always hitting Charlie up for things that he's learning in his classes. He's recommended me several texts. I'm now reading through Richard Lemarchand's The Playful Production Process and I'm taking notes. Okay, this is what we're going to do next year. The want to make and create and do things yourself is what bleeds over to the students that you have. I really only see myself on average, I may be like one or two steps ahead of the students. I'm learning something, I'm passing on, like, here, let's try this, let's try this. You're learning new stuff so that you can teach it. And right yeah. away. And then I think that's pretty reflective of the industry, though, too. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like, as far as teaching it goes, just taking that active interest in learning and not relying on a pre-made curriculum, because I don't think it exists. It honestly just doesn't. And even my own curriculum, my lessons and all everything that I have for my programming, I'm constantly gardening that garden, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> need to do something new, or there's this thing that's new in this new version of Python. I don't have a set curriculum that can be bought and relied on for several years. And that's not really what it's about. It sounds like what your program's really about is giving the kids the time and the space and the structure and the process to, to make stuff. Yes. I, I was going to say, if there's a point too, to that short list, it's definitely environment. I think that goes beyond a lot of even the things I just mentioned is if you provide a environment that is conducive to that creative process, is professional, 
as silly as it sounds, I bought my own vacuum. I clean, I dust my room. I have alcohol wipes for when the computers get smudgy. I might come off as a neat freak, but when you walk into that environment, it's immediately noticeable that it's different from everywhere else on campus. This is a special place. Right? I, I have games in there. I have a nice little arcade game. I have a ping pong table in there that's from my parents' house that they never use anymore, but I brought it down there because can you name me a, a software company that doesn't have a ping pong table somewhere? It's mandatory. We, we do scrum meetings around that ping pong table, so it serves a lot of purposes. <laughs> but creating an environment that allows the kids to utilize the concepts that you're telling them about, say, hey, try this thing, and now here's a place where you can go try it. That's a huge thing. That's advice I definitely would give to a new teacher is figure out how to make your environment feel like what the end product is you're trying to achieve. If I want kids producing games, so well, I need to make a game studio. That's what my classroom should be and feel like is a game studio. And the, and the good thing about game studios is most of them are ratty and the furniture is used and crappy. So it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting a studio and working out of my house in shorts and at a little table shoved in the corner so it's making games is not always glamorous the best game companies start in really scrappy circumstances but you try to make the environment fun it's rogue and you make it your home it's yours yeah. this is my play place you made me think about when you talked about the care that you take in your room walt disney there was a time where he was in the parks and he was doing a tour with some of his executives and People were like, Walt, why are you fixating on all these little details? And he said, because people may not consciously get it, but subconsciously they do. Yeah. And he said, people treat a space the way you tell them through the way you maintain it to treat it. And yeah. he's like, if they go into a space and it's ratty and it's crappy and there's soda spilled all over the floor and whatever, they're not going to treat that space with respect. Right. And but if you keep it clean and keep it well functioning, it sends a message to them that this is a special place and there's a, there's a certain way to behave here. And I think that goes to your point about teaching the kids just to be professional and yeah. how they carry themselves and all that. And I've certainly seen it when my kids in their ability to present before and after your class, both Charlie and Julia have really benefited from just having to get up and present and do all that stuff. I think showing kids modeling what we would say in the professional world, what HR would say is modeling the behavior that we want <laughs> to see helps these kids understand what the norms are and just how to show up. Right. Yeah. And it helps them immediately feel comfortable in those environments and feel accepted in those environments. When I first got to MHS, it was all the slay desks, all facing one direction and said, I absolutely want to get rid of those. And, and I requested rolling office chairs for my classroom. And man, did I get like the sideways glance from my admin. You want to give these high schoolers rolling office chairs? Yes, I want rolling office chairs because I want this to feel like an office. I found some durable looking ones, some ones that uh, look like they could survive some abuse. But we still have, for four years, we still have the same office chairs. And it was rough at first, but precisely to your point, I said, this is a professional place. We're not playing Mario Kart on the chairs <laughs> around the classroom. I give this talk pretty sternly at the beginning of the year, but they get it. This is a really nice room. <laughs> the computers are nice. We have a nice set of M1 chip iMacs, and we have the rolling desks, and the, the desks are clean. There's not soda on the floor. They have that experience of being in a professional place. And I think a lot of it is subconscious. But the other thing that, that it serves is when we do get parents in there, I think it goes a long way with the parents who come into the room too and feel like, oh, this doesn't feel like a classroom. It feels like I'm in an office mm -hmm. somewhere and that and they can recognize that. And I think they can recognize that the effect that's having on their students while they're there too. So you've said Unity is your kind of preferred platform right now. Sure. If there were folks from Unity listening, do you have any asks for the <laughs> high school educational world? Is there anything they could be doing? to help high school students get into games? What would I, mean, I, I, be? I think they're doing a lot already, but I would reiterate to the engine makers or to the people that are into the industry and also to the adults in education, realize the potential and the talent that exists at this level. 
I think is the biggest thing. I, I really try not to refer to s- students in my program as kids. <laughs> a lot of the times, I know they're minors, I know they're not 18 yet, but they're very, very capable beyond what I think is expected of them most of the time. I think what our program has produced is, is really evidence of that. I've come across a few things with Unity Learn or some of their tools or platforms. And it exists, in other words, where they're not offering it to K through 12, but to higher education only. Kids at this age are ready already. <laughs> if you give them the tools, they'll figure it out and they'll, they'll make something amazing. So that's the advice I'd, I'd give to folks in the industry and also people in education as well, people in school districts, people who are CTE leads or district offices who are looking to include programs. This is their last step before adulthood. <laughs> they need to get ready and they're capable of getting ready and, and they're, they're capable of producing a lot of amazing things. Don't make the mistake of, of assuming that they're only good at taking tests. And I also think that in our industry, we talk a lot about diversity. One of the reasons I want to do this podcast is so that people could hear about this program because, again, I think the assumption in a lot of places is you can only do this in a rich district. You can only do this in private schools. You have to have a big budget, those kind of things. And back to the point I was making about diversity, it's too late when kids are in college to start worrying about the diversity mix because so many kids have already been set on a path at that point. If you want a truly diverse workforce and you want to encourage more people in the games industry, you've got to foster that in the high schools because that's where they're making their decision about, do they go to college? Do they not go to college? Do they go to community college? Could I even pursue games in community college? All those decisions are being made when these kids are 17 and 18 years old, not when they're graduating college. And so I think this idea of pushing it down to the high schools is very, very important for our industry. In order to grow, even though this is a downtime for games, talent is always hard to get. And if we're going to grow as an industry, we're going to have to massively grow the amount of, of talent that we have working in these games, not to mention the fact that game technology is being used in medical, it's being used in architecture, it's being used in film production and all these other places. So if you don't have facility with Unity and Unreal and some of these tools, you're missing out on a lot of potential jobs, not just jobs in the games industry. One of the reasons I wanted to do this was just so that people could hear that you can do this in a public school, that it's that it's possible uh, to do. Monrovia is not, we're a middle-class community, I would say, but we're on on the outskirts of LA. We're not Beverly Hills High or Mm -hmm. Hollywood High or one of those. We're a majority minority school, right? And actually, yes, we are. And and because we're a one high school town, which is a thing, we actually, we we have less in terms of funding than, than most. So it's very possible to your point of waiting until college is too late. Cause that, that's already a huge filter. College is, it's honestly getting less and less accessible right, with the amount that it costs. So you're already filtering out quite a few people just by looking at college graduates, Mo- moving it down into the high schools. I feel like what I'm doing though is, is also raising the bar in some respects. It's not the academic bar of how many AP classes you can take and how high a GPA can you get. It's, what can you produce? It's a different bar, but I'm setting it there and saying, these aren't my standards you're trying to achieve. This is industry standards you're trying to achieve. That's where the bar is set, because if you can do this, you at least have some chance of getting a job. And so that's what you're aiming for. Now, if yeah. you look at other career training programs, say automotive or some of the other tracks that kids could take in high school, what's the goal of those? Is it to graduate kids that could go directly into the workforce, or is it to get them fluent enough that they could go to community college or a training program. What's the goal when this, when your program is more mature, let's say you had more time, more money, whatever it is you need, what would you, what would your goal be? Would it be to graduate kids who could go directly into the industry or would it be to graduate kids who are fluent enough to go to, do you think college is still necessary? I I just love your thoughts on that. I think it depends on what, on what you want to do. General advice I give to my students on college is don't go unless you know why you're there. I think that's something that CTE should be 
in high school was like, here's your chance to explore. Here's your exploration chance. Like explore, try, try new things. See if this is the kind of work you like doing, because again, that's what the meta of mine is. Do you mind sitting in front of a computer hours and hours and hours solving problems? Because if you don't, don't do this. (laughs) This is your time to to try, right? I, I don't downplay going to college at all, but I think I think it just needs to be more of a consideration rather than just an automatic, oh, I do this and I go to college and that's the way things are done. What I would like to grow this program to is something that companies could look at and pull interns from. This is a viable place to pull interns from because they know this process. Even if they don't have the technical ability of your senior engineer, they know the API, they know the the engine. They know how to do code reviews. They've been in scrum meetings. They know the process. That's the stuff that's hard to teach. Yeah. That's the stuff you can only get by doing whatever they lack in terms of, of a hard skill. They can get trained up on that pretty quick, but having produced games, that's what I think is valuable. And if kids are doing that, I really don't see a reason why they shouldn't be able to go straight from here into an internship or an entry level or into QA, position. all my friends who were designer, especially guys who started out before this was really a business. A lot of people who are my age or a little bit older, there, there was no school that you could go to. They're theater majors or whatever, but they got into QA. And the way they learned design was just by testing the games and seeing the systems and running through them again and again and again and seeing what's fun and what's not fun. And the way they learned how to make games was by having to get into Jira and bug it up and go over and talk to a producer and learn how to triage bug lifts and learn how to prioritize and sit in scrum meetings and all that other stuff. It wasn't sitting in classes. So if kids are basically fluent with the basic process and they could go apply at a company and get into QA even, that will give them access to a path in the games industry. There's so many game industry legends that we know that started in QA without Mm -hmm. a lot of formal background. Absolutely. So this year was our first success story for that. The engineer on Doodle Dogs, he's doing an internship for a a small games company. He's testing, right? (laughs) He's uh, presenting the bugs. And because he knows Unity really well, he's actually able to provide like really good insights. So here's this bug. Is it because you use this function or what did you you think about using this tool or what have you? He has more even than just the ability to find bugs, which is valuable to any company. Absolutely. That's what I would, I'm hoping to grow this into is that kind of pipeline. But also, again, I tell them that shipping a game will serve you whether you want to go into industry or whether you want to go into higher education. Either way, you're setting yourself apart. I gave a talk to incoming eighth graders and granted this probably glossed over them really quick, but I showed them the number of a- kids across the country who are taking AP tests over the last decade and how high it's gotten, especially in the last five years. Everyone is doing this. What makes you think that's going to make you stand out anymore? Because it's really wow, not. what a good like, point. That what is, a good point. Maybe 15 years ago, yeah, AP was the upper crust and only a few people did and you did stand out, but it's become the standard now. And so you're not setting yourself apart by doing that. All these kids have high SAT scores. They all have yeah. uh, AP classes. You're right. And and as these colleges move to more holistic evaluations of students, yeah. uh, as opposed to the purely test-driven stuff because of the Supreme Court decision, they're increasingly things like that on your resume, being able to say, I shipped the game, they're going to set you apart from other kids who just did the academics. Mm-hmm. I wish I could pull up a chart of how many high school kids have shipped a game because you know, it's, it's going to be small, right? And I think it's one thing, no knock on the athletics programs, because certainly I'm a fan of those programs too. But it's one thing if you're a you know very talented high school athlete going to a college that has a football team. It's another thing if you've learned games in high school, you want to go to school for games and you want to work professionally in games because most people – who get in through an athletic path, they're not going to be in pro sports. Some will, most won't. The fact that you have some traction and understanding in the career that you want to be in, going into that program is a big deal. Absolutely. And it's going to make you more likely to get chosen for that program. One of the reasons Charlie learned Unity is I talked to Danny Bilson at USC and said, what do these kids need? And he said, they all have portfolios. Mm -hmm. And I took that to mean, 
oh, you've got to, you got to learn unity kid. So mm-hmm. I came home and was like, you got to learn unity. And then thanks to your class, he had a reason to learn it. Well, going into USC, what he found out was most of the kids were not actually learning to code and actually build and ship things. They were making stuff on Roblox, maybe, or messing around in some tools they downloaded off the internet or doing game jam stuff, but actually having programmed and shipped an app in the app store, very few, even going into USC, which is a very choosy program had done that. And that was a real differentiator for him. On that note too, if you don't mind me asking you a question, because that's something I'm constantly on the horizon for. I see how the industry is changing, especially with tools like Unreal. The work that was took a team of 40 five years ago can be done with a team of five. <laughs> it's changing for sure. And in the efforts to stay relevant, especially Unity, like you mentioned earlier, is making pathways into industries other than games. They're really doing a lot to do that. And it's more and more being seen as a more versatile tool rather than just games. But I see that in the next five years or so being something that I'm going to have to address as a game design teacher is do I continue having teams of 10, you know, 15 work on one? Or at what point do we start adopting these tools that are really drag and drop to to make stuff? Part of me like doesn't want to, that's part of the reason why I like the kids developing the assets themselves. Like we could buy some rad assets and put together a, a you know a really nice looking game. I, I don't know. I, I think the kids though lose some part of the process yes. by doing that though. So. Yes. I think you're doing the right thing. It's something I think about a lot too, because with Unreal Fortnite creative mode and Unreal editor for Fortnite, which is going to be hot with a couple people, you can build a map and deploy it. And I know teams that are doing it in four weeks, six weeks, I think there might be a place for that, but I I agree with everything you said about Scratch versus actually learning to code. Because my thing with Scratch and these kind of drag and drop and all of that is it may be teaching them to be modders, but it's not Mm -hmm. teaching them to make games. We're still a way off from walking into a game studio and not having to touch code or not having to touch the more professional side of these tools. And certainly Unity and Unreal, they're going to they're gonna continue to work to make it more accessible. But the thing is that kids will get that experience if they want it outside of school. What yeah. they're never going to get is to the degree that the tools get easier to do drag and drop stuff, it will make it easier for them to do things on their own. But that will only mean that they're never going to try to learn C-sharp or anything deeper on their own because they can rely on these other tools. So I think you're right. And this will change probably, but at least for now, I think you're doing the right thing, which is focusing these kids on trying to at least get some facility and some experience with what it's like to be a pro game developer. I think that's the right answer for now. But it could change. Brings me to the next question, which is, so we've talked about, you said your Hosannas for Unity. (laughs) Unreal is bringing up the end here. I have a few friends from Epic who will want to know, what can Epic do to get Anthony Carlson to use Unreal (laughs) in high schools? How did they kick out John Riccatello? Oh, man. (laughs) All those things that you mentioned, I've downloaded a few map packs and tinkered around with it and it's amazing what you can do. I, I don't think it's as, as high a uh, bar to jump over as some people make it out to me. Obviously, the, the C++ language is a little more <laughs> weighty than C Sharp. That was initially one of the reasons why I went with Unity 2, though, is just a little more approachable. But given the talent that and the capability I've seen of even our young high school programmers, once once you know how to think algorithmically, then learning another language is just another syntax. I don't really think it would be a problem at all. Um, and, and Unreal is using this verse scripting language. I don't know if you played around with it at all yet. Oh, no, I haven't. No, yeah. yeah, so they have a new scripting language they've created for specifically for making virtual world type, type content. Okay. And that's the scripting language for Fortnite Creative Engine, but they're here that people are finding it a challenge to work with. I don't know why. It'll be interesting because you've got this whole world of Swift and Go and and things like Verse that are even more contemporary programming language than C Sharp, which was really 10 years ago or 15 years ago, became very popular. I tend to think that 
If you can do C-sharp, then you'll be able to do any of these scripting languages. If there's actual programming involved in verse, let's say, mm -hmm. and you can build Fortnite maps in six weeks or two months or whatever, it might allow you to ship more within a year within your class. But I think it's still got a ways to go. Before it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, aside from that, the thing, and I I'm admittedly haven't deeply explored it, but just from hearsay, the thing that I've that made Unity really approachable for a program like mine was how much they've built out that Unity Learn platform. That's a real help. They gamified and put structure to learning their platform. And granted, there's tons of YouTube videos and, and there's even tutorials that are native on the Unreal page when you open it up. But having it structured and stepping through things, I think goes a long way, especially at this level of learning the engine, right? There's still plenty of times where a student will be on an Unreal Learn and, and on one of the tracks and making their way through things, but they have to go to YouTube and look something up. That's fine, right? But having that track to begin with and having a, a progression of things to work through steers their research into other places. So I think that's the other thing that, that really, really helped out there. So an equivalent of that for, for <laughs> an equivalent of that room really, would be really help you. I did those tracks myself, right? It's nice to have your, your account on there. I see the progress I've made when, in terms of learning certain things about the UI in Unity. So to see that in Unreal, you can learn a lot just by going in and tinkering, which is what mm. I've done with Unreal. But having a guided and structured way of going through it, I think it expedites things a lot. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to tinker, right? It's just like, hey, maybe you should start by this simple thing and move on to the next step. So I think a, stru a structured curriculum like that would do a lot in making Unreal more accessible to new learners for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. We're running up on time. Thank you, Anthony, Mr. Carlson, for taking the time. <laughs> so if people you. want to reach out to you and learn more about the program, where should they reach out? LinkedIn? Uh, LinkedIn. I'm pretty sure I have both my personal and my work email on there. <laughs> well, hopefully people will hear this yeah. and reach out and help figure out how to get these programs into more schools. So awesome. yeah. thank you, Me Mr. Too. Carlson, for your time. <laughs> thank you. Have thank a good you for listening. <laughs>